last uh, segments, I want to focus uh, particularly on the application of the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, but also look to ask the question, how can we bring this home into our everyday experience? How can we work with this uh, fourth foundation of mindfulness? How can we work with the different models? And the short answer I would give would be to see which of these uh, practices or perspectives most uh, resonate with you. I'm thinking actually, in my own experience, this one that we're going to do this last segment is probably the most practical for bringing into daily life. That's the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, which is basically looking for when a moment of suffering arises in one experience and then skillfully responding. And I'll, I'll unpack that later. But you might also find, you know, ideally we, ha- we have these five different models and you might actually, if you wanted to, take each of them for a week right? and work with each of them for a week. Uh, the recordings from today will be on Dharma Seed. They'll be available. Uh, work with the text. You might read the Analyo book. If this calls to you, you could work with each of those five models for a week. You know? Or, that's one alternative. Another one, uh, and it would be to each day in your meditation, maybe say, okay, I'm going to focus, let's say, I'm gonna, during this sitting, I'm going to look to see when the hindrances are present and when they're not present. And then how do they arise and so forth. And you can use the text as a guide. And once you take a week or so and look at one of these models, it it becomes yours. Just this one day, doing it for the short periods of time that we've done it, probably wouldn't do it. You have to t- we have to take this home and make these our own. You know, so if we were a group, we might, you know, we might say, okay, this is the starting point. Now we're going to meet once a week for the next five weeks, and each week we're going to take one of these. That would be that would be a way to work, and we will compare notes, and we'll we'll look at we'll work the first week with the hindrances, or in the second week with the model of the aggregates, and uh, looking at to open to the flow of experience, and the third week maybe with the senses, and the fourth week with the factors of awakening or the enlightenment factors, and the fifth with the four noble truths. That'd be one way of doing it. Uh, that's uh, that would be to really take the whole of the Fourth Foundation. Uh, it may be more likely that we just are drawn to one of the forms of practice. Maybe you really feel drawn to really uh, work bringing into your practice the tracking of impermanence. Maybe that resonated with you. Or to um, work with the aggregates and the different ways that we did it, you know, which can open up to, that, to what we sometimes call a flow experience where we're just with the flow of experience and we see where we uh, proliferate or we see where we get stuck and so forth. And it might be that. The, the, the aim of all of these practices is to give a little more direction to our practice. So again, we're not so much sitting pleasantly being mindful, but not really noticing that much. Because this, as we've seen a number of times, can really open up insight about the nature of experience. That's the whole aim of it. The whole aim of all this is to use the directed uh, attention to open up in ways that are helpful and skillful. That's the purpose of all this. Okay? 
So those are a few different ways. I, like I say, I think that for me, historically, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths has been the one I've most worked with in daily life. And I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, but that's the one I still do. You know, it's basically the core of it is, like uh, my first teacher was Joseph Goldstein. And he gave me a practice which was look out for suffering. <laughs> and if you notice suffering, ask, where's the attachment? And that was it. He gave me that near the beginning of my practice and I did it very religiously, so to speak. And it was very illuminating, very simple practice. It's a version of this last one that we'll do in a moment. Very, very simple. It's just having one's radar out for when, when I suffer some, which means when I'm reactive, when I get stuck. It's not suffering in any necessarily big way. Okay? So I'll come to that in a moment, but that would be my general direction for what comes next. Take one of these if you're really, uh, you know, of, have the nature that likes to really take this thoroughly, then do, by all means do one a week or something like that. Or, or take one of them that you really feel drawn to and do it for two weeks. See what that's like. Do it every day. Bring it into your experience. Work with it in the morning. So you say, okay, I really want to see where the hindrance is. And if you remember, if you remember the, the, uh, the line that's at the end of each of the sections, where we haven't gone into it so much, where it says, you know, is mindful internally, is mindful externally, is mindful internally and externally. Remember that? That we've read sometimes? It's an interesting aspect of the practice. We don't really give so much attention to those lines. It can be interpreted to mean internally, meaning, in my experience, externally, in someone else's experience. Can I track when other people seem to be caught in the hindrances? Now, it may necessarily involve a certain degree of interpretation. We have to be a little careful. But it actually is a very interesting aspect of practice to notice when other people get stuck or when other people are in, seem to be in certain mind states. Again, we don't have as direct access to other people as we do to our own minds. But we have a fair amount of access. <laughs> you know, we can, we can, especially if we've studied ourselves, that sure seems like reactivity, or that sure seems like that. I, that's the best interpretation of what externally means. It means actually tracking in others, tracking outside. And it's a very interesting practice. You know, it's something, of course, that it, taking a teaching role, if any of us are teachers or in the helping professions or psychologists, we have to do something like that a lot. You know, we want to track other people. That's my interpretation. And we can also use these models and track when do the hindrances seem to uh, come up? When is there really strong aversion in another? When is there? And I find it very helpful, personally, to do that rather than simply to go, it, it helps with a certain amount of clarity. You know, it's not like, because very often we might just become reactive. Someone else seems to be off, right? And I could easily be judgmental, or, but when I'm actually tracking, oh, that seems to be, it's really not, not so different from when we track ourselves. Oh, that person seems to be reactive. Oh, there's compulsive wanting. Oh, it actually can... Um, give us both insight and open us up to uh, some compassion. Right? It's very interesting. I don't think many of us do that so much, right? Other people are 
going through their stuff and we just react, right? Is that, am I correct in that? Is that accurate? Yeah, I think for the most, that's what I've seen in myself and that's what I notice. Okay, I have kind of an interest in having us read the text by the end of the day. So I'm, I'm not going to give too much attention to the fourth model, which is the model of developing the factors of awakening. But I thought I'd like us to read it. This, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, some of you know, there's something called a reading transmission, where actually, if you've actually heard the whole text in a public setting, benefits arise. And so I think there's something to that. It's something like we're, it's like, it's kind of like the old style, like the oral tradition. Okay, so let's go to the fourth model, the seven enlightenment factors. And maybe I'll give the introduction ahead of time and then we'll read it together and I'll maybe make a few comments. Then we'll go on to the Four Noble Truths rather quickly because that's, that for me, like I uh, said, is really probably the one that most of us can most take home and find of practical use directly. So let me say a few words and then we'll, then we'll do the reading. Uh, turn the lights on. Uh, how many would like the lights on for the reading? Okay. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. How many are would find it pleasant? How many would find it unpleasant? <laughs> how many are neutral? <laughs> okay. Helpful. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this fourth model. Many. How many of you are familiar with the model of the seven factors of enlightenment or seven? Yeah. Again, we often in retreats give talks on this topic. And these are taken to be seven qualities, probably we could name others. We don't name compassion, for example. We name seven factors. The first is mindfulness. And these are all factors which uh, are both the qualities of awakened persons or awakened beings have these seven qualities, number one. And number two, we can uh, develop these qualities, and as we develop, we become more awakened ourselves. And so these are, uh, at this point in the model, we are actively developing beautiful qualities. We have enough stability of mind, we've examined experience carefully, and now we're also looking at how we can notice, be mindful, of when these awakened qualities are present and when they're not present, and we can know how they develop. We can know how to uh, cultivate them, in other words. So there's seven of them. First is mindfulness, which is often said to be a balancing factor, which is always valuable. And then there are two sets of three. One set is very helpful when we need a little more energy, when we want to be more active. And those three are inquiry or investigation, the second is um, sometimes called uh, effort or, or energy. And this is really relates to that, the four wise efforts that I was talking about. And then there is a rapture or joy. So that brings in the heart to some extent. So the quality of rapture or joy is the third of these more act- activating or energizing factors. And then there are three stabilizing factors, which is what we want to develop when the mind is a little bit agitated or 
restless or out there. And those three are tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So these are all beautiful qualities. And again, the aim of the model, and I won't say too much, um, is to uh, know when these are present, know when they're not present, and then know what to do to cultivate them. Okay? We, we're, uh, we actually, the whole of this text is about cultivating the first of them, which is mindfulness. So we know a lot about how to cultivate mindfulness right now. Okay? So let's read the paragraphs. Anyone like to volunteer? If you read this, you go on Dharma Seed on the internet and you become immortal. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. So was it. Okay. You become immortal, but you don't get paid. <laughs> okay. Are we on um, the seven enlightenment factors? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Again, monks, a monk dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the seven enlightenment factors. And how does a monk dwell contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the seven enlightenment factors? Here, when there is the mindfulness enlightenment factor in him, a monk understands there is the mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. Or when there is no mindfulness enlightenment factor in him, he understands there is no mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. And he also understands how the unarisen mindfulness enlightenment factor arises and how the arisen mindfulness enlightenment factor comes to fulfillment by development. When there is the discrimination... Thank you. Why don't we have another person read the we want multiple chances for immortality? <laughs> Someone who hasn't read before? When there's the discrimination of phenomena, enlightenment factor in that, him. That's the same as inquiry when, or investigation. Oh. Yeah. When there's the energy enlightenment factor in him. When there's the rapture enlightenment factor in him. When there's the tranquility enlightenment factor in him. When there's the concentration enlightenment factor in him. When there's the equanimity enlightenment factor in him. A monk understands there's the equanimity enlightenment factor in me. Or when there is no equanimity enlightenment factor in him, he understands there is no equanimity enlightenment factor in me. And he also understands how the unarisen and equanimity enlightenment factor arises and how the arisen equanimity factor, enlightenment factor comes to fulfillment by development. Thank you. And one more for... Yeah. In this way he dwells, contemplating phenomena in phenomena, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And he dwells independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a monk dwells, contemplating phenomena in phenomena, in terms of the seven enlightenment factors. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And um, just a little bit of explanation. So you see where there are the dot, dot, dots. That's basically uh, uh, not repeating. If we would have the full text, it would repeat the first paragraph for all of the seven. And uh, that, so that's what the three dots refer to. They're just leaving out the repetition, uh, but they're 
uh, so the, the exact same words would be repeated for all seven factors. And you can see that it's repeated for the first and uh, mindfulness and the last equanimity. Then the other, uh, something else to note again, we, we can see how the guidance is to know when it's there, know when it's each of the factors when they're not there, and then also know how they get developed. You see that uh, understands how the unarisen mindfulness factor arises and how the arisen mindfulness enlightenment factor comes to fulfillment by development. So this is referring, in terms of that model of the four wise efforts, this is referring to the third and fourth wise efforts. Remember the first was stay out of trouble. The second was know what to do if you get in trouble. The third is develop good habits and then basically maintain and develop them. So this is referring to the third and fourth where it says one knows how the enlightenment of the uh, mindfulness factor is developed, how it arises. And then the next phrase says how it comes to fulfillment by development. So that's really just fitting this into the model of the four wise efforts. And particularly here for each of these, since these are, these are uh, so-called wholesome states or positive states, we don't have to worry about the first two wise efforts because if these are there, it's a good thing, <laughs> right? And it's more like we want to have them arise and then, uh, and then keep them going and develop them to fulfillment. So the, if we were to take this in more detail, we would talk about how each of the seven can be cultivated and developed and maintained and how it gets more and more mature. Now this text itself does this for mindfulness. We know, we, we have a lot of knowledge of how mindfulness comes into being. You know, especially if we've done the four uh, daylongs, but even just being here today, we have a pretty good sense of how mindfulness develops and also how we maintain it. We need the regular practice and then we use a lot of these different practices to, to develop further in that way. I'm wondering, anything about this one before we go on to the, the last one? Anyone want to uh, ask a question or make a point? Yeah. Uh, well, one thing that's come up for me today is that it seems like... Um, the idea of knowing when it when something is not present, yeah, as well as knowing when something is present, yeah, it makes the whole thing overwhelming in a certain way because oh, yeah. you have to be awake all the time, <laughs> because something is either there or it isn't there, <laughs> and uh, it's like a, you know. There's no rest for the wicked or something like that. I don't know. It's just like a mind boggling, you know, it just strikes me as a mind boggling undertaking to be present, you know, to, to be awake all the time. So the, uh, so the observation, uh, I would agree. I think it is a mind boggling proposition to be awake fully all the time. And, uh, and so how to, work with, how to work with making this real and practical for ourselves, right? And so 
I think that uh, maybe the way to work with this particular aspect up to knowing whether a, a quality is present or not present, I would do it uh, first as a focused practice that you do for a limited amount of time. In other words, I think all of this, uh, and really this is really a principle of how to learn. That's why I was saying, okay, if you just try to do all of what we did today, or even maybe right now for those who are newer, it's a lot, right? It's a lot. Even if we're familiar with these models, it's a lot. So how to take it home? And I was saying, well, choose one that really resonates and do it in your formal practice, which might be half hour a day. Right? The same thing for this. If that one resonates with you and is interesting, do it in a boundaried period of time, do it regularly, and then you'll find with all these practices, when we do them uh, in a repetitive way over and over again, they start uh, kind of leaking out into daily life. And you might, and that makes it uh, very workable, not, not overwhelming particularly. If you tried to say, I'm going to do all of the uh, models and the four foundations of mindfulness starting at 5 p.m. today, um, wouldn't work. Unless there's someone here who's, I'm underestimating profoundly. Um, <laughs> but it wouldn't work for me. And it's, so it's to say, yeah, find a, way to do it in a boundaried way. Do it for, if, if that appeals to you, which it sounds like it does, then just do it in a short amount of time and maybe don't do anything else. You know, and then each of these, I think this is a principle of meditation generally, if we focus on it for enough time, it starts to become more, it's almost, you know, it's like any capacity. It actually, we don't have to pay conscious attention to it. It's like, Riding a bike, when you first had to ride a bike, you had to really give a lot of conscious attention. You had to do step one, two, three, four. You needed guidance. At a certain point, uh, it became part of your skill set, and there was no, you didn't need conscious attention. That's how the brain works generally, you know, is that we need initially to learn something, but once we've learned it some, it goes into the more unconscious way that we're actually still manifesting the skill. Mindfulness is like that. When you do it enough, it becomes more part of your default way of meeting the world. Same with compassion or love, right? And it's actually part of the answer to what you're saying is that if we had to think about all the initial instructions we got in meditation all the time, it'd be too much. But luckily, as we uh, internalize, they become more qualities of our being that we don't have to think about. So that's partly a response. It's interesting, isn't it? And so it's, it's like anything that people do, like the, you know, the, the beginning musician, the beginning pianist has to learn scales. It's a lot of manual labor, has to do it over and over again. The virtuoso, just practices and it's as if it was a performance, right? And all the scales and all the background is at an intuitive level. Don't have to think about anything at all, right? That's, you, and that's probably, for, for all of us have certain skills we develop and that's really the model for it, right? For anything we do, teaching, doing something, 
there are periods where you learn, where it's manual labor, where it's hard. And for this model, that's where, we, where a lot of us are right now, right? As you do it more, it goes more into your kind of natural capacity that you don't have to think about. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's very... And it just means that don't worry too much if it feels like a lot of manual labor right now. If you stay with it, it'll stop being, it'll stop feeling like that. Okay? Um, okay, so uh, Four Noble Truths. Like I said, I think that this is the most practical of these and the most easily uh, accessible in daily life. And maybe the most important. It's the last one. This is really the teaching of how to move from being in bondage to being free. It was, as most of you know, this was taken and is often taken to be the core teaching of the Buddha. I remember once I was uh, uh, asked with a friend of mine, Diana Winston, who's also one of the Spirit Rock teachers, we were asked to go to a, a community and to, uh, uh, and to uh, facilitate the development of a really interesting project, which was to develop a kind of community that would be both um, potentially a hospice, but also uh, a place for uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, retired Buddhist practitioners. <laughs> Very interesting idea, kind of like, a little bit like the, uh, a mix between uh, a Buddhist-based retirement home slash assisted living <laughs> slash hospice. <laughs> Very interesting idea. I think still, still a wonderful idea that hasn't, you know, anyone who wants to make a lot of money, make that happen. <laughs> uh, or have, have a, you know, provide a great service. It's just waiting. I think Zen, Zen Center is doing a version of it. Uh, but there's a lot that can be, there's a, there's a lot there. Anyway, we were asked to be um, facilitators and guides. And the reason I'm telling this story is that there were people from different Buddhist backgrounds. And at first there was a little bit of tension because how do we bring these different people together who are interested in this project? And in the end, people could say, we all agree that the Four Noble Truths is, an import- is it right at the center of things. And that's what this group came to. Was interesting. So it's right at the center. It's also the first teaching that the Buddha ever did. You know, you find in the text it's called the the teaching is found in the text called Setting in Motion the Wheel of the Dharma. It was the first teaching he gave after he was awakened, at least as far as we know. And it's a very um, basic teaching. The first two noble truths are about the nature and causes of suffering. And the second two noble truths are about the nature and causes of freedom. So it has that kind of dual structure. Very interesting. Now, we know that uh, it's important to know that the first truth is called the truth of suffering. And the word is dukkha. And it's very important to have some precision about what's meant by suffering. Because in English, we use the word uh, Suffering and pain, the word, those words, somewhat synonymously, right? And it can be confusing because the teaching is that it's possible to overcome suffering. Well, it certainly doesn't mean it would be questionable 
to talk about overcoming pain, right? unpleasant experiences and so forth. And so there's uh, an important distinction here, which is actually really by the very definition of suffering, we have a sense of the cause of suffering. And my favorite way that this distinction is taught is through a teaching called the teaching of the two arrows, which anyone who's uh, um, uh, studied with me a little bit has heard, because I like to teach it. And how many have heard the teaching of the two arrows, or the two, sometimes called the teaching of the two darts? Okay? And so it goes like this. The Buddha asked his practitioners, everyone experiences uh, painful, ex- uh, painful sensations. Every- everyone has painful experiences. What distinguishes a practitioner from a non-practitioner? They didn't give a ready answer, so he answered. And he said, everyone experiences uh, a certain amount of painful uh, sensations, emotions, thoughts. We have, at times, unpleasant sensations in the body. We can have unpleasant emotions, fear, anxiety, and so forth. We can have unpleasant thoughts, fearful thoughts of the future, whatever, catastrophizing, and so forth. We all have uh, a certain kind of, uh, certain amount of unpleasant experiences. Some of us are not treated well by others. We may be treated unfairly or unjustly and so forth. And that's part of, that's a given of the human experience. Everyone has a certain amount of pain, we might say. Everyone has a certain amount of unpleasant experiences. The Buddha said, this is like being shot by the first arrow. This is like being shot by an arrow. He says, he called this, this is the first arrow. We all are shot by the first arrow. Differing amounts, but all of us shot to some extent. We all will uh, sometimes be ill, sometimes have injuries. We all will eventually die, which may involve unpleasant experiences, and, um, and so forth. In that, a practitioner does not differ from a non-practitioner. So what's the difference? He said the difference is in the relationship to the first arrow. He said the non-practitioner tends, because of the presence of the first arrow, to shoot a second arrow. We might say either at oneself or at others. I have unpleasant experiences and I tense around them. Or I say, I don't like this. Or I contract physically or I react, or I blame myself, or whatever. And that would be shooting the second arrow. I may have, when I have difficult emotional experiences, I might, again, might be a little bit uh, angry, and I might blame myself, I might blame the other, I might brood about it for three days, or three months, or three years. Right? Just that, like Stephanie was saying, that small moment may lead to a lot of uh, uh, consequences. That would be shooting the second arrow. I might, in an interpersonal relationship, someone uh, says something uh, nasty to me, and I react back with nastiness, that's shooting the second arrow. I receive injustice or unfairness, and I treat others unfairly or unjustly, that's shooting the second arrow. You can see how this is 
a major mechanism for interpersonal relationships, for conflict, how, and it's really shooting the second arrow is the basis for most conflicts and wars. People are automatically shooting the second arrow as if that would help. Right? And do you get that? Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. The first arrow we call pain, the second arrow we call suffering. You know, using the language in a precise way here. You know, even though uh, in ordinary usage they're often used uh, interchangeably. But I'm using the language differently because when we talk about overcoming suffering, we're talking about not shooting the second arrow. We're not at all talking about not having unpleasant experiences. We're not talking about getting rid of the first arrow. Really, really crucial. So, there, so part of, uh, in fact, that's a given. You know, the Buddha himself, uh, when he was older, had a fair amount of pain. He had uh, a bad back when he was older, and he also was prone to headaches. You'd think that a fully enlightened Buddha might know how to get rid of headaches, but <laughs> uh, I think it's great that he had headaches. <laughs> you know, because it makes my headaches, if I have them, fully acceptable. <laughs> you know? And so, um, so the practice becomes how to learn not to shoot the second arrow. Right? That's the key of it, the key to it. And it means, for example, I have unpleasant body sensations. Can I open to them and just learn to be with them, especially if there's no way around it? And so no coincidence that the actually first practical application of mindfulness was with people with chronic pain by John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical School around 1979-1980. And he taught people to be with their chronic pain and not shoot the second arrow. Just be with the first arrow, which is hard enough. But doctors would say that as much as 80 or 90 percent of what they experience as pain is actually the second arrow. It's the reaction, the tensing, you know, all that comes into it, you know, the stress that develops in the body. And so that's one of the great places where mindfulness can really work amazingly is in not shooting the second arrow physically. And we could also see how that works emotionally. We can learn to, uh, something difficult happens, I can learn to be with it with mindfulness, to be with my sadness or anger, and I can be very careful about what I do with it, both to myself and to others. Again, this is, this is a fruit of mindfulness. This is the way that can work. And I also think that this core teaching is exactly what people like Gandhi and King teach when they talk about nonviolent response to oppression. If you think about it, they're saying, we have received pain, we will not react and inflict pain on our oppressor. Right? We, will start, we will, recognizing that violence is often secular, circular, cyclical, sorry, <laughs> secular. <laughs> You have seen the creation of a new word in English, <laughs> October 20th, 2013 at Spirit Rock. <laughs> okay. No copyright. <laughs> okay. um, and so you can see, um, can you see how nonviolence also expresses the same teaching? We have received pain, we will not pass it on. 
we will not shoot the second arrow socially. Right? And you can see how a lot of wars are two sides shooting second arrows to each other, which is the reason that peacemakers and mediators, a lot of what they do is they bring things back to actually, can we actually know our own pain with the situation and share it with our opponents? And that opens up compassion. You're following me? And then that would be the same interpersonally with conflicts, right? That's what a mediator would do with an interpersonal conflict. But basically, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the role of a peacemaker is to bring the suffering of one side to the other side and vice versa. Right? And you see how that fits the model of the two arrows. I love the way that you can actually, one can actually see how the same core principle goes all the way from the uh, um, internal, internal experiential dimension to the interpersonal to the social. And I, I find that really can unify things. And it unifies it around this teaching. So if that's what suffering is, then you see that the, uh, four, the Four Noble Truths are going to teach us not to shoot the second arrow and to be with... Um, the First Noble Truth is to be with suffering, to see its nature. And the Second Noble Truth is that the cause of suffering is some kind of grasping, or we could say a kind of reacting. We, and I would say that the uh, Second Noble Truth, the truth of grasping or pushing away, is really the principle of the um, reactivity to something that occurs in experience. Am I reacting by grabbing hold or pushing away? That's really what the Second Noble Truth is about. Another way of saying it, it's shooting the second arrow. That would, that would express the pushing away quality, where we would say, I'm grabbing something, would express the grasping. You know, seeing that, that uh, those are the two main forms of reactivity. Are you following me? The two main forms of reacting are grabbing hold and pushing away. And they're actually variants of the same, uh, same uh, idea that the present moment is not okay as it is. Either because I want to, it's, uh, it's unpleasant, I want to push it away, or it's pleasant and I want to grasp hold of it. Okay? So the first noble truth is that there is suffering. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering. The third noble truth is that there is a possibility of not suffering. We could say there's the possibility of peace or uh, awakening. Um, some sense of not, of being with our experience without reactivity, which is something we experience all the time. That's why it's helpful to tune in in that way. And the fourth noble truth are the set of tools and understandings that help us to come to this um, peace or this letting go of the reactivity, letting go of the grabbing or the pushing away that help us to do that. And that's the eightfold path that involves right understanding or wise understanding, right intention. It's usually divided into three areas. One is connected with wisdom, one is connected with ethics, and one is connected with meditation. And the ones connected with ethics are right livelihood, right action, and right speech, actually. Interestingly, focus on speech. And the three connect with meditation are right mindfulness, uh, right concentration, and right effort. And so, how to, how to put this into practice? Because we don't have to remember all, all of what I said. 
In practice, it goes something like this. And this is what we'll do in a moment in meditation. In practice, it goes something like this. We, much like in the exercise that Joseph Goldstein gave me, I look out for moments of suffering. And maybe I first do it in meditation, and then I bring it to daily life. And so I look out for when I'm reacting, when I'm either grabbing hold or pushing away in a compulsive way. I look out for, I have those moments on my radar. They may, in a meditation, there may not be many of them, but maybe there's some, you know, and I start noticing them. You know, I remember when I was doing that practice, sometimes I would, you know, be meditating, I'd be fairly calm and peaceful, and then I'd think of something that happened the other day that I didn't like, and I would get kind of, and I would say, and then I would say, suffering, huh? <laughs> something like that. Or I would, I would, actually I wasn't so coy or something. But I would just really notice that there was suffering. And then the second part of it is, if there's that uh, practice that Joseph gave me, if there's suffering, where's the attachment? Or we could say, where's the aversion? Where's the strong unconscious un, um, aversion? Where's the strong unconscious attachment? And so I might be, um, I might be sitting and I notice that I'm feeling uh, some unpleasant sensations in my back, okay? And I notice that I'm reacting. I'm not just uh, easy with them. I'm reacting. And then I, I, then I try to study, oh, there's suffering. My radar picks up there's suffering. I hang out with it some. Maybe I've, I may have the uh, wise discrimination. This is not causing harm in my body. It's something I can just hang out with. And... Then I notice, then I ask, I'm suffering now, um, you know, am I attached to something? And then I, my answer might come back fairly quickly. Yes, I'm attached to this not being here. <laughs> I'm attached to the sensation going away. Or I'm kind of, uh, you know, I really, uh, I'm, I don't like it and I want it to go away. And that's the second step. So we go through four steps. First is just, Noticing their suffering, hanging out with it, seeing what it's like, tuning in. Is there some way that I'm attached or aversive, you know, which are different versions of attachment? And then I notice, oh yes, I don't want this to be here. Okay? And then I, then, I, uh, then I say, is there a way that I can let go of that attachment? Which in this case would be, can I just hang out with the unpleasant sensations without reacting? You know, and then I might ask myself, what's going to help me to do that? Maybe I can just do that easily without bringing in any further tools or perspectives, but maybe I need to say, oh, I remember how this person did it. And maybe I make use of some resources and then I actually relax into it and just feel the sensations. And they're unpleasant, but I'm not reacting. That would be a, an example, right? And you know, how would we do that with uh, maybe like an interpersonal situation? Maybe first that I'm meditating with. How would we use that, that, uh, those four steps? Anyone want to give an example? Suppose, uh, suppose you have a difficult interaction. We want to first, and I'll give the starting point. The starting point is, okay, me and my you know, partner or coworker, we had a really difficult um, interaction yesterday and I find myself sitting there 
stressed about it, right? You know, intense, stressed, blaming myself, blaming others, that qualifies as suffering, right? You know, we, by suffering, we don't necessarily mean something huge. It can be just very ordinary. Okay, I notice that, I hang out with it, and then I might ask, what? Did you want to go further with this? Emily? I, someone else may want to. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll take the, I'll, I'll do this. Do you want to go further with it, Stephanie? Okay, let's use the microphone. I've just been stressed by this interaction. Okay. Step um, number one. Yeah, so I was thinking about um, a situation I've had at work yeah. where um, I've gotten in trouble for something. Yeah. Um, or I've done something wrong. And so notice that I'm suffering, uh, feeling, uh, usually getting small, contracted, feeling. Let's, yeah, let's first take this in, a, in context. Let's say I, met, I, I have a half-hour meditation. This comes up in my meditation because right. applying it to the flow of the actual talking gets more, way more complicated. So let's first look at this in the context and I'm just sitting with my own mind. Okay. Right. So maybe that happened yesterday and I'm sitting, meditating, and that story comes up around what happened. Right. And I feel that um, experience of the suffering around that. So Notice some suffering. You tune into it, right? Yeah. So I might right. attend to the physical sensations right. of that, the thoughts and emotions around it. Um, really track it, yeah, really noticing, okay, this mm -hmm. is what suffering is like, yeah. Yeah, okay. um, so maybe feeling, s like, I'll feel small, um, uh, kind of almost like a, a seven-year-old version of me. Yeah. Kind of, um, uh, and then looking at what I'm attached to, uh, I'm attached to looking good. I'm attached to uh, feeling um, competent. So we would ask reflectively, yeah. mm -hmm. am I attached to something here? Right? Mm -hmm. And right. it's, uh, you know, I don't like uh, being seen in a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, Okay. so, yeah. That would be the second. Mm -hmm. um, and then is there a way I can let go of that attachment? Yeah. So um, kind of w by identifying what it really is that I'm stuck on, yeah. if I can release some of that, maybe around thinking about, other ways that I'm valued there, kind of reality yeah. checking myself, yeah. um, getting a sense that, or maybe um, you know, bringing some uh, wisdom to the scenario, um, reflecting on what... Right. Mm -hmm. So you're bringing in yeah. these, di we, you know, they're bringing in these different aspects of the tools or resources, maybe reflecting in a certain way. This is a more complicated example than just relaxing around the shoulder unpleasant sensations, right? You can see how it gets more complicated, but we could bring in other resources. I might reflect on um, how I'm valued. I might uh, see different things. I might uh, uh, go to certain, and th this is where we can bring in active reflections. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So. Thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah, maybe one more comment, and then we'll then we'll do the do some meditation. And let's say also say our names. I'm Ikea. So we, I could do some self-forgiveness and self-compassion yeah. and extend some compassion to whoever else was involved in the interaction. Right, right. that's bringing in the, that, that uh, complementary heart practice that, that might be very valuable in that setting, right? I could give myself uh, some degree of compassion and also give the other. So, so you get the sense of this, right? And 
we, so again, we go through the four steps. And again, I think, uh, I think this, this is very applicable because you just really, and it's a very simple practice. You first do it in your meditation. You just say, okay, for this half hour, I'm going to track for any significant degree of suffering and then apply those four steps. And then practice it maybe primarily just, you might not do so much with the fourth, but you can apply that. And then as you do that more and more in your meditations, you can start to bring that out into daily life. So it, but it's really, see, it's the, the key that's so different from how our conditioning is, is that we track suffering and it becomes the starting point for spiritual practice, we might say, rather than the starting point for getting lost. So it's, it's huge, right? This is huge. And, and we actually track for it. We set the intention. Again, we can cultivate this in our meditation first. So let's, Let's do a meditation now for a short time. And first, first, and again, if you want to shake out anything that help you come back to being present. So we'll do this in two ways here today, just briefly. First is just to be present, be with the breath, and then for the next six or seven minutes, just be on the lookout for any suffering. It can even be a small kind of suffering, physical, emotional, you know, thoughts that you don't like, some where there's some reaction, just track for that. And if something comes into being, work with it in the way that we've uh, outlined.
Now the uh, second practice is as we continue to sit, is to bring to mind a situation where you have some suffering, maybe on a scale of 10, not the most difficult, but maybe up to be up to seven or eight. And bring a situation where you might be experiencing that suffering to mind. Just tune into how it feels, what the thoughts are, the emotions might be. You can imagine yourself in that situation that brings that suffering up. And then ask yourself, is there some way that there's a kind of compulsive grasping or pushing away, attachment to things being a certain way? And just to reflect and see if you can actually feel experientially that quality of attachment, of kind of unconscious grasping or pushing away. See if you can feel that. Maybe that a certain situation is simply for you not okay. There's no flexibility. And then thirdly, ask, is there something that I can let go of? Is there some kind of grasping or pushing away that I can let go of? in this situation. And then what perspectives or tools would help me to let go, to not be so compulsive about this uh, situation?
what would help me not to suffer. observations in a moment, but one thing important to say is that there may be situations where I may be suffering and it still may be important to respond to the situation. You know, in other words, I might, there might be something happening that is um, being treated unfairly or being treated in a way that's very uh, problematic. Um, the fact that I may have been treated unfairly or the, may, the fact that I might have a legitimate grievance uh, can be separated from the question of whether I'm suffering. It's a, it's a subtle point, but you know, in, in the same sense that I can, you know, if you think of Gandhi or King, the, uh, they were responding very fully to injustice but they were, in a sense, trying to do so by not shooting the second arrow, which is the same thing. So I can, uh, uh, in other words, be in the so-called right or be, have something done which is very unfair, and my reactivity will still lead to my suffering even though you know, I might be in a good place. You know, it reminds me of a cartoon which shows a, a tombstone and the epitaph is, uh, he had the right of way. <laughs> if you follow my, my point. <laughs> so, any observations, thoughts, questions? Please, uh, toward, towards the back here. How many people were able, in some way, in, e in either of those experiences, to touch a sense of um, having an insight that maybe was a little bit new about the situation. Well, that's great. How many were able to maybe have some sense of uh, how to uh, let go to some extent in the situation? Yeah, that's great. Please. Yeah, Sarah, please. So Gandhi, Gandhi or uh, King, Yeah. you would say didn't have any, would need, in order to not be suffering, would not have had any attachment to the outcome? Yeah, so question about would they not have attachment to the outcome? Um, um, yeah, it gets into the question of what's the difference between commitment and attachment. Uh, and that, that, that's, that's an interesting distinction because um, and actually, you know, in the book that I did, which is on the table on, called The Engaged Spiritual Life, I have a whole chapter on, that, on this question. 
because it's a big one for social change, right? It's a really big one. And so the last chapter of the book is called Committed Action, Non-Attachment to Outcome. <laughs> but it's a, it's a little tricky because it really has to do with the distinction between commitment and attachment, which is also an issue for close relationships, for working. Can, can see some of the same dynamics. We can see the difference between attachment and commitment. So attachment is going to be tight and narrow. And actually, I, my, one of my thoughts was, since I wrote that book, maybe I should use a little different language. Because when we use the language of non-attachment outcome, it, it can be very confusing. But what we're talking about is some tightness around it that involves grasping. And I, there I don't think that we would find with Gandhi and King a kind of grasping. And that's where they were very committed. But if they were grasping, that means they would have done things which went, maybe went against their principles. You know, we find in the life, for example, of Gandhi, um, a lot of times where he insisted on doing something with a certain kind of integrity, even though in the short run it, it didn't seem to get him what he wanted. Right, or something like that. And he, he also made use of the ancient uh, principle in Hindu tradition of this uh, uh, action, what was called action without fruit, action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. So it's somewhat paradoxical, but it means, I think if we look at the distinction between commitment and attachment, we can unpack that, right? So again, it's probably clear in the sense of a close relationship. What, is it, what does commitment mean? It means I'm really there no matter what happens, in a sense. And attachment could mean I want it my way or I'm not with you, something like that. Or in the context of a movement, it could mean I want the results really quickly or I'm not committed. If we don't succeed in the next five years with what I want, I'm out of here. That's how it actually manifests. That would be attachment. And we see that a lot in social movements, right? Or we see uh, the attachment would be to getting my agenda met for this particular meeting or so forth. And so the commitment uh, can, so it's a little bit tricky and a little bit, for me, hard to put into words. But you get that, that's the direction I would go. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know if anyone could say it better, but I've, yeah, it's, an, it's, it's something like that. So there's, again, uh, we use attachment sometimes to mean commitment, or to mean a principled following of something, which is not, attachment has a sense of grasping of some tightness, tightness psychically, tightness to, which is going to manifest in action. Does that make some sense? Okay. Yeah. Please, maybe, maybe one more and then I better stop for reasons of time. Yeah, please. Here's a friend here. Um, oh, yeah. Does does the Buddha talk about commitment? Does the Buddha talk about commitment? Well, interesting. In the, the Chinese, the Chinese asked a lot about that because the Buddha left his um, wife. <laughs> he later rejoined her, but but the Chinese say, "You you are following a man who left his wife and kid. Mm, how can you do that?" So it was a part of the Confucian polemic against the Buddhist. Um, um, I think. Uh, I don't know if there's a word which directly translates as commitment. There's, there's the term uh, determination, 
which comes quite close, which is one of the ten uh, paramis, along with generosity, that is one of the core virtues, a kind of determination which often is connected with something close to what we call commitment. It's really staying with a particular intention. And so there was a lot of emphasis on really staying with the intention to awaken through thick and thin, which is a big part of our practice, right? It's how do you keep the perspective when things don't go so well? It's huge for many of us. So I think it was there, but I don't, to my knowledge, uh, you'd have to look for terms which mean, which like determination. I think it's adi, adithana, adi, aditana, which is something like commitment, but not exactly as we understand it. Yeah, thanks. Let me, uh, we're, we're, we're at time. We're getting close to time. Let me close just with a few announcements. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for the uh, fullness of your attention. And how many of you could, uh, could come back for some further work with this? <laughs> yeah. and, and, I, and again, I hope that we can uh, have that sense. And I'll, I'll do a little exercise right before we close which can help with us seeing what is appropriate to take home. What do we want to bring into practice? Because my hope is that there were things here which were useful, like I was saying earlier, which maybe was this last one. For me, that's the one I probably worked the most with, personally. This last practice where we just have the radar up for suffering, and then, okay, we are finding suffering. <laughs> suffering is turning up on the radar. Okay, time to go into action with the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> Something like, really, something like that, right? And, uh, you know, time to, you know, the little internal monitor, like the, in the Woody Allen movies, where, you know, where they had the little thing inside that directs the traffic and so forth. Um, okay, so we'll get to that in a moment. But I want to thank you for in your, your very strong attention, for the sincerity of your practice. I want to thank the people who were here for four sessions, really investigating the Four Noble Truths. I feel like applauding. <laughs> yeah. And I also want to thank those who are here for the first time or the second time in the series or the third time. So thank you for, because this, this was a lot to stay with, right? This is a lot. This is, and normally when I teach, I actually have a, quite a bit more time for um, meditation experiential, but it's almost like we had to give a certain amount of guidance for it, right? To really work with it. And, and I wanted to be complete. I, you know, I don't think I, I don't think we read the last two, did we? No. Okay. I was just saying that. We're, we'll close with that. Okay. Okay. We'll close with the reading. Um, so I wanted to thank you for the fullness and um, want to also say, uh, just to say, out on the table. I didn't name it, but I have some materials. Um, if you're interested in staying in more touch, you can put your name on my. I have an email list. I just send it out three or four times a year, not very much, so not one of these constant emails. If you want to stay in touch, you can do that. There also are flyers for upcoming events. I'm actually going to be here the next two days in this hall teaching on the heart practices, <laughs> teaching on loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity with Heather Sundberg. We'll do two days. You can come for either of the days, 9.30 to 4.30, right here, so I'm actually going to be around for the next few days. I also teach often on Wednesdays. I'll be here on Wednesday. But if you're interested in that, we'll give full instructions for loving kindness, 
and most of the instructions for compassion, joy, and equanimity, okay, if you're interested in that. Also, um, the work I do on transforming the judgmental mind, which uh, we just did a retreat here last month. Um, and if you're uh, interested in that, I do offer other retreats, but in other parts of the country, if you want to, if you're interested in that work, because I don't know that we're not, I don't know the next time we'll do it here. I'm going to be teaching it at Esalen next May, <laughs> Transforming the Judgmental Mind at Esalen, and then do it at uh, Cloud Mountain, north of Portland, over New Year's, if you're interested. And then also, I also do it in North Carolina in November, but that's kind of far, a five-day. And then uh, we also, I teach the uh, Metta Retreat, Seven Day Loving Kindness, which is in January, and teach um, five day, where I co-teach these. Um, it was one that uh, Sylvia Borstein originally started, and she'll be there some of the time, but it'll be Larry Yang and Heather Sundberg with me. Also teach a solstice retreat around the winter solstice with a lot of ritual. We sit in the dark. We have a solstice ritual. It's a lot of fun. Both of those retreats historically have filled up a little bit, be, you know, uh, usually at least a month or two before. So if you're interested in those, uh, it's better usually to, to sign up on the early side. I think that's enough for my announcements. There's that book that I have there, The Engaged Spiritual Life. And then, um, if, you, um, if you're earning your continuing education credit, you want to, uh, you want to fill out a for evaluation form, and you can make a line in the back. Is that with, with uh, at the table over where Cecile is? Okay, and thank you for uh, your carpooling. Thank you in advance for your support for my teaching, which I appreciate a lot. You supported a lot just by being here and being so full and present. And so let's finish with two things. Let's finish first with a um, reflection. Bring to mind what may have been helpful from the day. And then also We'll take a minute or two for this. Then bring to mind also your intention with which you leave. It might be to practice in a certain way, to bring one of the tools into your daily life. See what there's, there's there, both what was valuable from the day and what you take home with you as an intention. Now we'll, we'll finish with the reading of our text. We have two paragraphs, inviting two readers. Anyone like to read? And, uh, towards the back, first person.
This is under the Four Noble Truths. Again, monks, a monk dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And how does a monk dwell contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the Four Noble Truths? Here a monk understands as it really is. This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Thank you. One more reader. In this way, he dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena internally, or he dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena externally, or he dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena both internally and externally, or else he dwells contemplating in phenomena their nature of arising, or he dwells contemplating in phenomena their nature of vanishing or he dwells contemplating in phenomena their nature of both arising and vanishing, or else mindfulness that there are phenomena is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and repeated mindfulness. And he dwells independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a monk dwells, contemplating phenomena and phenomena in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So may our time together be of benefit to ourselves, to those we come in contact with, and in known and also mysterious ways, may our time together be of benefit to others, ultimately all others. So, yay, we have completed the four foundations of mindfulness.